You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hey folks, did you know that Black Diamond makes ski gear? Skis, poles, skins, boots, gloves, pants, jackets. Hell, they even make this thing called the Jet Force, which will float you to the top of an avalanche and serve you brandy while you wait for help. But who cares? That shit's crazy. We're climbers, and it's still climbing season somewhere, right? In the collective and normal conscious, it's the climbing gear that matters. The beaners, the packs, the camelots. I mean, the camelots. Are we still arguing about that? They're the best. So let's keep climbing, people, and not go gently into that good night. But rage, rage against the dying of the autumn light. Little Dylan Thomas for you there, people. You're welcome. Yeah, you can go skiing, and skiing's pretty fun. But climbing's better. Hell, even ice climbing has to be better than bobbing around in an avalanche. But that Jet Force thing is pretty cool. So check it all out at blackdiamondequipment.com and tell them that the Enorma cast sent you. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is Sunday, November 22nd. 22nd. Yep, schedule's all blowed up again. This is episode 93 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Armando Menacal. Who's Armando Menacal? Well, you're going to find out. He just happened to start something called the Access Fund, among other things. Yes, I'm way behind on this one. I have the usual litany of excuses. Work, life, Hawaii, Yacht Rock. No, those aren't the usual excuses. Yeah, I went to Hawaii. My girlfriend, bless her heart, surprised me with a trip to Hawaii. And everyone's like, oh, that's so sweet. She surprised you. The truth is, is that she surprised me because she knew that I would argue with her about going to Hawaii. What kind of asshole argues about a free trip to Hawaii? Because, you know... Normally, I'd just be like, well, why don't we just go climb it? It'll be way cheaper. We'll just go to like St. George and go climbing for a few days. But she wanted to go to the beach. She also knew that our friend Jeff Jackson moved to Hawaii a few months ago. Jeff Jackson, friend of the show, Rock and Ice editor, episode 17, I believe. The one about the horse people, the Nohuales. Anyway, I ended up climbing with Jeff a bit and meeting some very stoked climbers from Maui. A handful of very stoked climbers. Very stoked to see Jeff show up, I think. The ancient prophecy was fulfilled. A tall, mystical man with godlike crimp strength would come from across the great water. 
and the bite of steel to stone would ring out over the island. Something like that. Anyhow, besides that, you know, swam, snorkeled, relaxed. Relaxed so much I didn't feel like doing a podcast while I was there. So, got home. Then I had a gig last week. Rehearsals, gig. Then I went climbing yesterday. Got to keep climbing. Can't let the podcast get in the way of climbing. Although it sometimes does, actually. Truth be told. So here we are, the 22nd, trying to get it done. It's okay. James Lucas deserves to stay on top for 20 or more days, don't you think? Anyhow, before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that the guys down at climbingzine.com have a bunch of items that would make lovely gifts this holiday season. Climbingzine.com, where you can get the Climbing Zine, get some books by Luke Mihal, get some apparel, dirtbag state of mind apparel. And they also have a subscription now. You can get subscribed to the Climbing Zine. Get it whenever it comes out, which is a couple times a year. So yeah, if you have that climbing friend who already has six sets of cams and everything else he or she needs, maybe this will be a nice little gift for him. So check out ClimbingZine.com, go to the store, see what they have. And also remember that while you're celebrating whatever Saturnalia-derived holiday you choose, this solstice, if it involves gift-giving, the Enormacast has t-shirts. Don't talk about the t-shirts enough. So go to enormacast.com and click on the t-shirt banner. Check out what we got. Nice gift for the Enormacast fan. All right, let's get to the interview with Armando Menacal. Armando started the Axis Fund after trying to get something going at the American Alpine Club. Split off, started the Access Fund. Same one we cherish to this day. Quite a guy. Exemplary life lived by this dude. Very much a pleasure to talk to, and I hope you enjoy listening to Armando Menacal. But first, a message about your health, the health of your cervical spine. Does your partner suffer from Trigan syndrome, or one hangitis, or even worse, delusional performance disorder? Well, there really isn't a cure for DPD, except for a good smackdown. But it does probably mean that you've been belaying them for hours and hours on end and are now suffering from BNP, or belayer neck pain, a stiffness in the cervical spine just below the occipital region of your thick, thick skull. But now there's a cure for BNP resulting from DPD. Ask your doctor about belay specs. And when he doesn't know what the hell you're talking about, just smile and tuck that prescription for opiates away for your next overseas plane flight. But then ask several strangers about belay specs. Ask that cute barista at the coffee shop on the corner about belay specs. In fact, ask everyone you know about belay specs. Keep talking about belay specs until nobody wants to climb with you anyway. Problem solved. But if that doesn't work, then go to belayspecs.com and get yourself a pair. And don't forget to enter Enormacast at checkout for a discount and to help out the podcast. Side effects may include people thinking you're staring at them when you're not. Old track on is rolling their eyes. People putting them on for the first time saying, ooh, that's trippy. People insisting they don't like those weird glasses even though they've never even tried them. If you feel drowsy, nauseous, rumbling in your stomach, horny, confused, or have strange, vivid dreams, this probably has nothing to do with belay specs. And is more likely from that bug you picked up in that backpackers hostel in Rio after five too many caipirinhas. Belayspecs.com. Say adeus to belayer neck pain. The last name's right, yeah? Yes, it's about as close as you can get in English because it's Armando Mato Menocal. <laughs> what he said. Armando is a uh, longtime climber, uh, developer, maybe most notably for Cuban climbing, um, but perhaps uh, one of the reasons 
we've been hooked up is because Brady Robinson said, you got to talk to this guy. He started the Access Fund, uh, has been involved in it his entire life. And uh, maybe that's kind of kind of one of the big reasons to have you come sit down. You're working on a, a Pan Am Access Fund, like for right. for the entire hemisphere. Everything south of the U.S. border, we say. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, just uh, an I- interesting background coming out of um, even as far back as the 1970s in Yosemite. So uh, welcome. Thanks for coming and sitting down, Armando. And uh, we just met, uh, but I've been looking forward to this for for a few weeks since we decided to book it. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it too. More than by regular work at OR. <laughs> uh, right on. Um, you're still uh, peripherally involved in the Access Fund, which we'll get to, but I actually kind of wanted to, to ask you about this title that I, I keep reading, but most of my research has been around the Access Fund and uh, and climbing and everything else, but there's this title, Human Rights Lawyer. And uh, I just kind of wanted to start there because that's you know something... I, I get a lot of dirtbag climbers in here and, and uh, don't get to, to walk around with titles like that. So what does that mean? And, and can you talk to me about a, a career in that, where it started, and if it was connected at all to climbing? Uh, probably in time it was. Um, human rights lawyer means that you do what are normally lawyers call civil rights cases, which can have a very, they can be very, you know, some very, you know, some people are international ones. And that's the uh, really tough job of, uh, uh, trying to help people in third world countries and other countries. It's almost like the issues I got into in the last 15 years in Cuba uh, and wasn't very effective about doing it anyway. But in the U.S., it's, you know, mostly doing civil rights cases. And I I got to California in 1966, and I was really lucky because that was the boom of uh, everything from the free speech movement at the University of California at Berkeley, the anti-war movement, the uh, summer of love in San Francisco, all those things happen at once. And uh, I guess I got radicalized and wound up being uh, a lawyer representing the uh, uh, anti-war movement, mostly individuals that would get arrested. And then that got me into starting in 1970 doing poverty law. And I did start climbing in 1969. Okay. <laughs> so they, they came at about the same time. And then for the next 25 years, that's, that was what I did as a, as a lawyer, doing mostly trial work. Uh, usually big cases, class actions. I had two trials that lasted six months. That's not very exciting, but, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, but, uh, that was basically, uh, paralleling, uh, the time that I was also a climber. Okay. So when you, when you showed up, you said you, you, you showed up in, in California, um, having already gone through school. Yes. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Florida, the least mountainous. Well, I guess maybe Louisiana is even less mountainous. Okay. okay. And I grew up as just a, a kid down in Florida and I, I used to go out in the Everglades on my own all the time mm-hmm. with, with my friends, you know, they would tell their moms that they were at my house and I would tell my mom that I was at their house. And we'd go off in the Everglades for two or three days. So uh, I, I never thought about it till much later. But that obviously instilled some love of the outdoors. But then I went off to college and law school, and I didn't, I didn't do anything in the outdoors. And my first three or four years in California, I was the same way. I didn't do anything. And I was lucky enough in 1969 to do a trip to Colorado. And this friend of mine took me out 
and we hiked up something called Mount Baldy, there must be a couple hundred Baldies in the United States. Right. Um, And my friend said, yeah, we did technical climbing because we did have to use our hands and feet at the top. And I went back to the Bay Area and I called up the Sierra Club and they said, oh, yeah, we had this thing called the rock climbing section. Mm -hmm. They meet every Sunday at Mount Tamalpais. And I went there and that started my climbing career. Right. I was climbing in Yosemite two months later, a month later. Uh-huh. So you walked into, into Yosemite in 1969, 1970. You, that makes me smile just because of most of us have seen this Valley Uprising film and, and, the, and the pictures in the, from that era. But so you, you go and you learn how to rock climb with the Sierra Club, uh, famously uh, a very conservative group of people in terms of going towards rock climbing. And then you walk into Yosemite and traipse through Camp 4. Was that like, <laughs> you know, two different worlds? Oh, yes. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, you want to say it's it's a culture clash, but it's not that much because, you know, the bond is climbing. But there was absolutely no doubt that the Sierra Club way of climbing and the Valley way of climbing were two different things. Mm-hmm. In a way, I think it's much better the way people get into climbing now. Yeah. You go to climbing gyms and you climb long before you start learning knots and stuff. But that wasn't the Sierra Club way. I mean, I I learned things that I was using 40 years later when I guided Braxton. You know, how to escape a blit, how to set up a rescue. They really didn't teach you much about rock climbing. Right. <laughs> they taught you all the things dealing with rope craft and safety. And then fortunately, one of the people teaching the class and before I even finished, said, let's go climbing. And I said, fine. And he took me to Hetch Hetchy in Yosemite National Park. And we did first ascents because every route there was a first ascent. So my first climb, real climbing experience was getting to actually climb first, you know, do first ascents. And that was the Piton era. Right. You know, basically, once it got harder than five, or five six or five seven, <clears throat> uh, we went to aid. <laughs> These are short little climbs, 40, mm-hmm. 50 feet, little benches right. around Hetch Hetchy. Um, and, uh, and I thought, well, this is climbing. Right. Doing first ascent. Yeah. And just exploring. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So I managed to, to break the bondage of, of just learning the knot craft, you know. But I did, you know, I could tie up a, a bowling with one hand in the dark. Sure. Thanks to the Sierra Club. Right. Yeah. Probably still can. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I did that so many times guiding right, right. for Exum. Not in the dark, but. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so I'm kind of interested. I mean, as soon as you mentioned this 1969, you've got, I mean, that just comes with so much like pop culture. I don't know. I, I don't think baggage is the right word because that's negative, but imagery and everything mm-hmm. else. The Vietnam War is going on. You, you're, you're a lawyer. I mean, and you live, you live around Berkeley is this where you're and coming San from? Francisco yeah so I mean both, both places yeah. you're just like in it and you go out to Yosemite and there's this like crazy hippie groove starting there as well and yet you're a lawyer you know so it seems like you're just treading in all these different worlds but they weren't that different you know I mean yeah there were guys walking around camp four you know some of them had long flowery shirts <laughs> and bell-bottom pants they even climbed him. But the people I was working with in San Francisco was the same way. I mean, I'd, I'd go to these lawyer meet, meetings 
of people that were representing anti-war demonstrators. And they were dressed, dressed just like the people in the valley. And they would pass joints around at, at meetings of lawyers. Sure. <laughs> and I'm one of these people that uh, didn't use drugs. I think it was mainly because I think I found climbing. <clears throat> and when the joints would go come to me, I'd pass them on. And I used to, used to always joke that people there, that they used to think I must be the DEA agent at all the meetings because <laughs> I was the only one that wasn't taking a toe. Come on, man. <laughs> uh, but uh, now, Chris, the, it wasn't that big a difference. Now okay. you go to court and all. Right. But let me, you know, when I was a, a poverty lawyer, I'd go to work in dungarees. I used to wear cowboy boots then. And I had a coat and a tie I'd put on if I had to go to court. You know, you stand in front of a lectern in front of a judge. The judge doesn't realize you still had your Levi's on and your boots. Right. right. <laughs> uh, and I, I could pass as a, just like, I even had a ponytail, you know. And probably couldn't have gotten away with it in a lot of places in the United States, but in San Francisco. Right. right. Uh, eventually, there were even judges with ponytails. Okay. Right on. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, it's cool. It, it's just, it's just wild to have, uh, somebody here that was just like sitting at that crossroads, so to speak, you know, that we all learn about now 40 years later um, or almost 50 years later coming up that, you know, there you were in the thick of it, so to speak. It was a very exciting time, both in climbing and in, you know, in terms of being in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I worked in down in the mission district of San Francisco, an office that, well, we had about 10 lawyers there and I was the head of the office. And that was really intense, just having to everyone, you know, coming into my office every 30 minutes, telling me the latest hard, tough case they had and uh, having to advise on how we're going to handle it. It was uh, it was both intense and exciting. And I think that's what first got me into climbing was mm -hmm. that I could leave all that. Climbing just took me away from all the work I was doing. I joke that eventually I would have to leave post-its. I don't, I think that's more of a recent story because I don't think post-its existed at the beginning of the seventies, but I would have to leave notes to myself on the refrigerator saying what I had to do Monday morning. Cause I couldn't remember where I had to go Monday morning oh, right. after a week in a climbing. Right. That's, that's how good climbing was. What do you, what was it that drew you to this line of work? I mean, other than you, you became a lawyer for however many reasons, but you know, as as a gra as as a lawyer who graduates, you can take all different paths. And what what do you think was instilled in you that said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna go this path. I'm gonna go down and towards this poverty thing." I mean, because it's not easy, and it's not, you know, I don't think it's paved with gold by any by any means. So, no, and um, and a few times in my life, I've tried to like redirect my career on purpose, and and I found that it doesn't work, <laughs> and that both serendipity and just being open to change is probably more important than picking a career goals. Because ironically, I mean, I grew up in the South, you know, I, I went to segregated schools all the way through college. It wasn't until I got to law school that I went to school with my first black students. And I, one of the reasons I left the South was I could see the conflict going on and I didn't want to be in the South anymore. Right. And yet 10 years later, I was a civil rights lawyer. I didn't see that coming. You know, I finished law school. I went to work. I went to work for the biggest law firm in the West. 
And little by little, I started volunteering my time, both for the beginning of the anti-war movement, for at the poverty law offices that were just opening. And just little by little, those became much more important to me than, you know, my quote day job. Right. And so after three years, I left my day job and did that full time. But it wasn't with a conscious thought that that this was going to be my whole career. And the majority of the people that I did that with, you know, they went through kind of like the cycle of a lot of young climbers, right? People join, come into climbing three or four years. It's really intense. It's important to them. It's probably the most important thing. And then they eventually do something else, mm -hmm. you know, and it's only us lifers that stuck with it. And the same thing happened to me in my professional work. I stayed being a civil rights lawyer for my entire career, mm -hmm. which actually ended pretty early as a, as a lawyer, because basically when I was in my fifties, I stopped practicing law as a full-time career and started doing other things. Okay. And again, I tried to be real conscientious about that choice. And I went and talked to friends that I knew, you know, one guy went from being a law professor to the general manager of the Oakland A's. <laughs> Another one went from being a lawyer to being the executive director of the Academy of Sciences and, and talked to them about how it happened. And then it turned out, it wasn't that they planned on making changes like that. It's just that a life opportunity presented itself and they took it. Right. I think most people, if they look back on their lives, always have regrets of things they didn't accept chances for a change. Right. And I think it's those of us that are open to those kind of things that their lives take off in new directions. So here I, you know, mine wound up being in the fifties when I wound up being a climbing guide at Exum. We wound up doing that for the next dozen years, mm -hmm. you know, starting a international guiding company in Cuba and climbing in Cuba. Right. I didn't plan any of that. Okay. So now you, you did just mention there's the people who start climbing and then they are super into yeah. it for quite some time. And then they end up maybe moving on to something else. And you said, yeah, but not like us lifers. So talk a little bit, if you would, about, um, about, the arc of climbing through, I mean, basically all of this and, and continues. I mean, as, as someone who's still peripherally involved in the access fund, it's still a big part of your life. So can you talk about what your climbing looked like? Was it, was, were you a weekender? Did you have big goals? Did you, you know, what, what you were hanging out with Bridwell? You mentioned that earlier. <laughs> well, I, I knew Jim in the back same, then, yeah. same, you know, that same era, the 1970s, this like heady free climbing era and, yeah. And big wall era and everything else. So what did that look like? Well, you know, even climbing was at a real crossroads and exciting then. But climbing really is what opened my whole life into something that was much, much broader. You know, most people come to climbing after like parents taking them hiking, backpacking, um, uh, experiences like that, outdoor experiences that then lead them to climbing. Mine was a, the other way around. Climbing was what opened everything else for me. And eventually, you know, I've been doing things like climbing, kayaking, backcountry and extreme skiing. I was part of the parapenting movement in the 80s in the United States. And it was climbing that opened all these up because my first hiking, my first skiing <laughs> was all to be able to go someplace to climb. Climbing was the first thing right, that I did. Right. And so it has remained central in, you know, in my life. I've never been better than an intermediate climber. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I joke that the reason I left California after 25 years was that I basically done every climb in Yosemite and Tuolumne that I could do. <laughs> and I knew I'd never do the climbs that I wanted to do the most. You know, I, I, I tried and I, I mean, I even trained at gyms over and over. I wanted to get to 511 cracks so I could do Astro Man, the Rostrum. And I finally realized <laughs> I was never going to do those. And so I left. Actually, I left California for other reasons, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was true. Right. I'd done every climb in the valley in the meadows that I could do several times. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was a good time right. to leave. And I never got to the point where I could climb Astro Man. <laughs> right. And, I mean, I guess someone could have yarded me up it, but I, I'm not saying I had to, I, I would have had to lead every pitch, but right. I at least wanted to feel that I, I was climbing. It. Sure. Sure. So who, who were, who were your peers at this point climbing wise and, and or did you just run the gambit? No, you know, I, it wasn't certainly the, the best known climbers and mm-hmm. it wasn't the, 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 like the stone master people now that are become good friends of mine, you know? Right. You know, people, no, I wouldn't say good friends, but acquaintance, you know, John Long and, Rick Akamazo and all that. I didn't. I didn't know them then. The weekend warriors are are very different, mm-hmm. you know, because we just go up and or camp even for a week and stuff. When you were a weekend warrior, Yosemite, you didn't even stay at Camp Four usually because you'd have to get show up at Camp Four. Well, you get there Friday night, you can't get in. You'd have to then get in line Saturday morning for about an hour to get a campsite. Well, no, most of it would be got. Uh, would be we'd be off climbing. We never be at a campsite. Mm-hmm. Most of just go up bandit camp the weekend. And there was a, a very different culture that developed at camp four in the parking lot. And later on, 20 years later, when I was negotiating with the park service over camp four, because they were trying to shut it down after the flood in 1999, I think. And then that led to the litigation and everything that wound up saving camp four. I particularly talked to them. Women, we've also got to preserve the parking lot culture <laughs> because so many of the California climbers who only go up on weekends, they don't stay at camp Four. they meet at camp Four in the parking lot. Just a number of, if you used to go back through there in those days, there'd be a dozen people cooking next to their cars mm-hmm. dinner. Right. Because they weren't staying at a campsite. Yeah. Before they'd scatter into the night. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that didn't, I mean, that was the same in, in the 90s when I was there. Yeah. Because um, I was that guy. And you would see all these people. Living in Southern California and coming up for a yeah. week at a time or a, or, or yeah. a, you know, a couple nights before I'd go up on El Cap. Yeah, I would never yeah. camp for once a month or twice a month. Right. But I'm at the parking lot every single Saturday and Sunday looking for partners. That's where you'd always meet people and sort gear. You, you drive through there now, you see people sorting gear in the parking lot still. So uh, as we're on this little bit of a tangent, what was the response from the, from, I mean, initially you're like, okay, we also have to talk <laughs> about this parking lot. I'm, I can only imagine that that was one of the things they really wanted to get rid of. Oh yeah. They wanted to limit the parking. Well, they were trying to get rid of the whole thing. Right. Which you have to understand that, that there has been, there was a long running history of the uh, park service and particularly the Curry Company, which was the main concessionaire trying to get rid of Camp 4 and the climbers. Mm-hmm. And actually, the the person that got me started in access work was a climber named Rafi Badan, who's well-known in the 30s, beginning of the 40s. 
and Rafi was a blacksmith and a very gregarious man. And whenever there was a conflict between the Curry Company or the Park Service and Climbers, Rafi's way of dealing was it with it was he would throw a bunch of charcoal and stakes in the back of his vehicle and drive up to Yosemite, throw a big barbecue and invite everyone, the Park Service and the Climbers, to talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of to work out the problem. Well, he, he eventually pushed me into helping him and then doing acts. And that's what got me started. And actually, some of the first issues I worked with was Camp 4 because they, they wanted to close it. And there were problems. I mean, in those days, the Curry Company, of course, didn't like the way climbers behaved in its facilities. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't, it, not, it didn't necessarily covet Camp 4. It just soon have it raised and <laughs> right get rid of everybody right huh. so they wouldn't have to deal with the people that were scarfing food in the cafeteria and right. hanging out there the, all the time. You know this Camp Four thing, and and you know again the Valley Uprising movie really highlights you know this conflict between climbers and the Park Service, and I think it's it's legendary and maybe at times overblown, but maybe at, at times worse than we thought it was. Um, but it seems like we're in an era now where there's a little bit more understanding between the park service and the climbers. Do you oh, feel like that or? Oh, or? absolutely. No, no. It's, yeah. Yeah. No, things have, things have changed tremendously and, and, you know, and for the better. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember one story. I, every time I'd go up there for meetings, I try to take some other climbers with me you know, just for numbers sake, you know, <laughs> I remember I was having a meeting. With the superintendent, he was an acting superintendent, and I took Al Steck with me. Wonderful, you know, person, climber and everything, great history, you know, been climbing there since the 50s. <clears throat> and so Al and I are sitting there with the superintendent, and this probably was the late 80s. And this superintendent, you know, I start talking to him, and this was when we were the access committee of the American Alpine okay, Club. cool. And so I'm starting to talk to him about the problems of climbers. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who do you represent? And I said, well, you know, we're talking about the climbing community. He said, no, no, no. What's the organization? I said, well, we're the Access Committee of the American Alpine Club. How many people in the American Alpine Club? So, oh, the American Alpine Club has been in existence since 1903. And I start giving them all No, no. How many people are in the American Alpine Club? You know, it's been doing all this work. All It's just got, you know, climbers all over the world. And how many members in the American Alpine Club? my recollection was something like 1,300, 1,500. <laughs> and he just sat back and he said, well, you know what? The problems of climbers are as important to me as a dump truck load full of dirt. <laughs> he obviously had not been to the, well, in those days was called the Dale Carnegie School of Char. Right. <laughs> and Al, Al and I looked at each other and that's how the meeting went. You know, we both got out that room and said, wow, I've never heard of that dump truck load of dirt. <laughs> yeah, not a good reception. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah. I guess. I, so that that yeah. tells you what it was like right. back in 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 those days. Yeah, know? sure. And I mean, you know, I guess he has a point as a constituency at that point. There's not. It wasn't a lot. He doesn't have to worry too much about, I mean, 1,300 letters, even if you got the whole crew to write one, you know, 
And and in those years, for example, after uh, when Camp Four came the closest to being closed after the flood, and then little by little, you know, working with the Park Service, there was a litigation and all that. And things started, you know, that's when things started to change. It actually had to get worse before it got better. And then uh, at that first big reunion where the Park Service, I can't remember when it was. It was only about five, six years ago, maybe a little mm-hmm. more than that. There was a, a big party there. And and the superintendent was going, going to speak. And I remember I contacted uh, an old climbing friend of mine who was there, who had begun a climber who worked, then eventually worked for the Park Service and worked his way up, became part of the planning office, Gary Colliver. I mean, I remember when I started, met Gary, he was, he was <laughs> working nights in the jail. <laughs> it's the only time, I, fortunately, I got to see the jail in Yosemite was when I would go see Gary. <laughs> right on. Uh, I contacted Gary. I said, you know, Gary, you know, I've been pushing for years to have the Park Service stop calling camp for Sunnyside, which is what they'd always called it. Oh, yeah, that's right. We'd have these meetings with the Park Service and the climbers are saying, you know, we got to do this about camp for you. We want you to do this. And the Park Service would always be answering. Well, we don't have that in the plans for Sunnyside. You know, (laughs) that's that's. And it was symbolic of like two ships passing in the night. Sure. We were <laughs> literally and figuratively, figuratively never talking about the same thing. Right. And I had been pushing them over and over to change the name. And this was just before then when I talked to Gary, just before that the superintendent was going to speak. And I uh, talked to Gary. I said, Gary, if you tell the superintendent that it, if he wants to immediately tell climbers, this is a new era, we are working with you, he should announce that it's going to be Camp 4 from then on. Mm-hmm. Nothing will tell climbers more about the change than if you do that. And the Monday morning after, because I was living in Wyoming by then, I get a call from Gary. And he says, Armando, I want you to know when the superintendent spoke, he announced that from then on it was going to be camp. You just made this the right suggestion at the right moment. Awesome. <laughs> I'd been making it for ten years. Right, right. <laughs> but it just shows you how you have to sometimes just keep keep doing something, and eventually, uh, if you hit that right moment, um, they did it. And it's really a symbolic of the the way things are better now. Right. So is it? Uh, I, I kind of want to move on, but I have one more mm-hmm. question of. of so what is the status of its, I mean, how is it protected at this point? I mean, is there, is there some, uh, perpetuity? No, no, it, but, but it could has they been, like tomorrow be like, guess what? We're going to close it again. No, because it's, it has been designated okay. as a historic site. Oh, okay. But, uh, a lot of bad things can happen. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most of these things are just a matter of personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Eventually, what you hope is that the land managers realize that they get much more out of working with climbing community. Right. And you want climbers to recognize the same thing. Right. Well, there's right. a, I mean, going back to the, the dirt or dump truck full of dirt, you know, there's, it's no longer 1300 people in the constituency. You know, there's a voice in, a, I mean, it, there's, there's two things that I think too is that, you know, cause a lot of times there's this historical precedent deal, you know, it's like, well, why can't mountain bikers ride on this trail, but horses can? Well, horses are the historical use or whatever. I think, I mean, aren't we in an era now where they're, they're like realizing that the history of Yosemite is now like laced with the climbing history. It's together. 
to a oh, certain yes. extent. Oh, no. Climbers have benefited tremendously because we are, you know, what in to the Park Service and, and the Forest Service is considered important. We are an historic use. Right. I mean, the 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 main problem that mountain bikers have, because they have more numbers than we are, they have more num uh, more money, if you just look at their, their members, and they're well organized in terms of doing trail work and everything else, is that they're last in line. They just came along after right. the Wilderness Act and all these other uses, and they're trying to get into places that now the the land manager's already busy with all the current users. Right. You know, um, there was one meeting, I can't remember what it was, where I think it was at an AAC meeting where we had a panel discussion of, on access. And I had invited um, the, the chief ranger from Yosemite Valley to speak. And I was the moderator. And I started the talk by saying, and I hadn't told him this. I just told him, I'm going to start with a hypothetical. I'm going to throw it at you, but I don't want you to tell you what it was. I said, well, assume that Climbing had never existed in Yosemite. And today, when, now you're the chief ranger of the Skywalks and kind of shaggy looking, big beard and everything, vile looking. And he says, I'm going to climb El Cap. I'm going to be up there 68 days. And I went through the hypothetical and basically described Warren Harding's climb. And I said, would you let him do it? And he hadn't expected this question at all. And, and he said, fuck no. <laughs> and then he backtracked. <laughs> right. But that was the reality, you know? Yeah. We were lucky that, you know, Warren Harding did it when he did it because we could not do it today. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, the whole idea of it would, would transgress so many of the sort of set rules, um, the exceptions that are being made in terms of, of even just can't like, let's pretend there's just camping in one place for 68 right. days or whatever, you right. know? So, and, and that was part of, the conflict that began at the in the eighties when sport climbing was introduced, because sport climbing to the climbing community was important because you know we had people starting to rap bolting, rehearsing, and all the other problems that caused an ethical dispute. But sport climbing also took climbers to different places they had not climbed before. You know, you thought of the climbing was the Tetons, the semi. Um, Places where there were big climbs to do. Sport climbing suddenly met little tiny crags, state parks, county parks, city parks. Climbers started putting up routes in those places. Right. They'd never seen climbing. They had no idea what climbing was. And that was another whole aspect of that conflict, which wasn't within the climbing community. It was between climbers and land managers because we now had a whole new breed of land managers that were accustomed to, you know, dealing with small parks and were accustomed to controlling everything. And here come these people who, you know, in a, in a short period of time, suddenly have taken over a, a crag, putting up <laughs> dozens of routes. Mm -hmm. And they say things like, no, no, we don't want you to tell us where to climb. No, we put in the anchors. You don't. Right. And we decide you know, where each of these is going to be. Just, you know, to climbers, it's, it's integral. To land managers, the idea that not not only do climbers do it, but we alone decide it. I mean, in a way, that's been one of the hardest battles in defending all use of climbing techniques is that climbers insist that we alone can decide. 
Imagine if people with trail hikers came along and said, you know, we, we want you to build trails, but, but we're going to decide where those trails are going to go. You don't. Right. Or we're going to build them and we're not going to tell you until we're done. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No. That, yeah. You know, I guess I'd <clears throat> kind of occurred to me, but when you state it like that, I, I, I can just, I get a little tense even hearing it <laughs> because I can just imagine what kind of, I'd never thought about how an intense, a problem that might be for, you know, a land manager who personality aside, that's their by, I mean, that's their job description. Yes. Is they're there to keep things in order and not let everybody just do whatever the hell they want. Because and, and to them, it's a dangerous activity. Absolutely. And yeah. they're used to, you know, saying, oh, hey, if we can't have two lifeguards on duty all the time, hey, we got to shut the pool down. Right. And all of a sudden here comes a group of climbers and say, no, we're going to do this on our own. And yeah, dangerous, but no, we don't want you in any way involved in controlling it. And, and we're so lucky that that is still <laughs> uh, the ethic of climbing. And we have so far managed to persuade land managers at every level to allow us to do that. And I've really learned when you go to a third world and all of a sudden you try to do the same things like in Cuba, <laughs> it's a shock. Right. <laughs> well, that the bolting thing, you know, the, the, the sort of rise of sport climbing coincided, did it not coincide with, with, um, your efforts to be on this, the access committee and then starting the access fund oh, as yes. a separate entity. So can we talk about a little bit about that since oh, we're sure. talking about bolting a little bit? Oh, sure. Well, cause I'd already started working in camp four and then there was uh, another place, uh, there were a couple of little places in California where I was, where I started doing some access work. And then the president of the American Alpine Club said, well, would you start an access committee? They already had a mountaineering or a conservation committee. They asked me to do that. And I said, sure. One of the first people I picked to be on it was this fellow up in uh, Oregon. Great guy. Wound up working with the access fund for years as a trail builder, Jim Angel. And uh, Jim was well, one of the few people I got to work with over the years was older than me even. <laughs> And Jim had been fighting to get uh, Mount St. Helens open after the, you know, the volcano explosion, particularly the, you know, so people could climb it. And uh, he'd been, he'd gone through all the climbing management plans and stuff, and he couldn't get them to finally just open it. The Forest Service was really dragging its heels. They, everything had been put in place, but they wouldn't make, make the plan. So Jim and I talk about it, and he finally decided what, what he wants to do is, is, Way back in the winter, he says, I'm going to send the forester a letter saying on 1st of July, I'm going to climb Mount St. Helens, whether you put the timing management plan in or not, I'm going to go climb. So it was a, a form of civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was being done in a situation where, you know, he he played by the rules. He'd done everything right. They were just dragging their heels. And so uh, we said, fine. I you know, let's do it. And as soon as the members of the board of the American Alpine Club heard about it, I mean, they threw Jim and me under the bus. <laughs> they never came to us. Instead, they just disavowed our, <laughs> they wrote letters to the Forest Service saying, these guys aren't part of the American Alpine Club. So I said, well, all I right. got better things to do. Exactly. All right. <laughs> I walked away from it. Well, three years later, there was a new president of the American Alpine Club, Jim McCarthy. And Jim contacted me again. He said, I want you to form an access committee and I will back you 100%. And he did. 
And that's when the access committee really started. And by then we were, you know, knee deep in the bolting controversies all mm -hmm. around the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were other controversies, you know, Waco tanks got closed. <clears throat> there was a lot, a lot of things happening, but the core issue was bolting and sport climbing. And it, it was dividing the climbing community. And I mean, I had good friends who, you know, tried to persuade like the park service and at Yosemite and other places that they should ban bolts. But in general, what you had was climbers saying to the parks, oh, you should ban rat bolting. They, they were trying to get them to regulate right. ethics. Really like specific. And the only yeah. message that was getting through to the officials was, oh, we'll, we'll ban either bolts or climbing. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> I mean, they weren't going to ban rat bolting. They didn't care about that or rehearsing. But that's what the climbers were arguing about. <laughs> that's so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, how but at that, even, how could they possibly like enforce a a rehearsing ban? <laughs> that's uh, that's awesome. But anyway, it was the it was the whole the mess, package right, the of sport yeah. climbing. Yeah, and it was dividing the uh, climbing community. You know, one little story of how we tried to deal with it was the first real ban of bolts was in the Superstition Mountains outside of Phoenix. Very strange wilderness area and that the wilderness starts right at a parking lot next to a city. <laughs> right. And you walk a hundred feet in and you're wilderness. Okay. And there are crags immediately. And that was one of the early places where a lot of sport roads got put up and the district ranger there banned bolts. And so we had went, met with them. They eventually appointed a task force of the people who were against uh, placing bolts. They were really against climbing. In the climbers and Sierra Club, anyway, it was it was the first task force at the end of the eighties that addressed this. And one of the first things they did in these meetings like this is they said, "Well, we you know we got to have assigned different people to work on different parts of the problem." One of the first things they said was, "We we need a definition of you know what bolts and climbing and all these things are." And I immediately put up my hand. You know, oh, I will I'll do definitions. You know, because I knew nobody else is going to want to do definitions, right? <laughs> and we changed the definition from bolts to fixed anchors. Okay. And purposely wow, included. You lawyers. Yeah, but huh? we purposely included anything being left behind on the rock by climbers, fixed pins and slings. It actually upped the ante by making the consequences greater to climbers because you couldn't leave slings or fixed pins behind as well as bolts. And it, uh, it therefore made it a bigger issue in the long run, but we did it in order so it bolting would not be a wedge in the climbing community. Okay. We wanted to show the trad climbers that, wait a minute, you got a stake in this too. Sure. I mean, the number of trad climbers who think they, they weren't clipping bolts was huge. We all, but we were all clipping bolts. <laughs> it's just they weren't all bolted routes. Right. Exactly. We all had a stake in bolts, but fixed pins were, they, they would eventually, I thought, have been included too. Because mm -hmm. what the battle was about was climbers placing things and then leaving them there. Sure. Uh, and us having that, that decision making power that we alone decided. But it was the climbers, you know, well, those of us that were there and that, that created that fixed anchor definition. And that won't, that's still true today. Mm -hmm. It's all three of those are included, right. slings, fixed pins, and bolts. But our initial thought was just not to allow it to be a wedge in the climbing community to make it 
that all of us had a shared state. Mm -hmm. It worked pretty well, except everywhere, except with the AAC board of directors, you know, and they kept trying to rein in its own access committee, even though we were really, you know, popular within, with the membership. And Jim McCarthy's way of dealing with it was he never let it come to a vote. Right. So essentially we had three years that Jim was president. Jim's a very powerful guy. I mean, as a personality. Sure. And he used that to, uh, he made a lot of the changes at the American Alpine Club. But he, he allowed us to grow for three years. And by the end, we, we were actually raising our own money. Okay. Outside of the AAC. It, it never went through the AAC's money thing. But at the end, the problem was we, there wasn't a single resolution of the board of directors endorsing any position that the access committee was taken on behalf of, mm -hmm. <laughs> of the American Alpine Club. And as soon as Jim was gone as president, uh, there was immediately efforts to rein us in. And so, uh, it wasn't long. It was about a year later that we decided that we had to form our own freestanding organization. Okay. And we left the AAC. Right. Access. And eventually the AAC itself matured and changed and it's now a it works hand in hand with the access right you guys sort of made up and got back together it took although there are some old former presidents of the american alpine club that haven't gotten over it sure <laughs> and i i must admit i haven't gotten over 100 percent myself on the other side of the fence because those last year or two that we were still in the aac i used to always say that the main thing i did was keep the aac off the backs of the people that were doing the work on the access committee. Right. I wasn't, that was my main job was to shield them from the rest of the organization. While they were actually getting things done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I was really happy when we separated. Right on. Even though, you know, it was scary to start out a whole new organization. Mm -hmm. And now it's a, you know, it's become a huge success, but. Right. Was it, was it like wobbly for a while? I mean, or well, that, are you like on a trajectory? Have you always been on the sort of a trajectory of, of gaining steam as it were? Oh no. The first year or two, it was, uh, first few months. I think we left the AC in December, 1990, started our own, had a meeting. Actually, I think it was in Salt Lake where we debated the things like a bylaws and moved on. And, uh, in April, uh, I get a call from our only funder. <laughs> We really had one source mm -hmm. of money, and uh, it was an annual thing that we in-house called the call, where uh, first Jim McCarthy and then it was me would call Yvonne Chenard and ask for money, and Yvonne would say, how much? Just give him a number, and we get a check. And he would, and we'd get him, so he wouldn't send it to the AC. He'd send it directly to Randy Vogel, our right. treasurer, and we had our own bank accounts and a little side story. Brady uh, Robinson, the current executive director, within the last year sent me, I don't know how he found this, but somewhere in the archives, he found an old canceled check drawn on the bank account, American Alpine Club Access Committee. And it was obviously one that, that Randy had done in our old checking account. Right. And I don't think I ever saw a check back from that era. And the American in American Alpine Club is misspelled <laughs> in the printed check. <laughs> I don't know if Randy did that so that 
you know, the AAC could never grab the money. You'd say, oh, no, we're we're a different right. audience. We're, we're American with two R's. <laughs> it's a whole different group of people. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, pretty wild. <laughs> I don't know. Next year is the 25th anniversary, and I hope Randy will be there. And, and we'll, we'll, that, that'll be a good story to find out the uh, if uh, if Randy just couldn't spell or if right. it was intentional. But anyway, uh, come April, I, Devon wants to see it. And I stop off in Patagonia. And that's when the bolting controversy is really going on. Right. Royal Robbins was writing articles about bolting and stuff. And uh, Yvonne says, unless you change your position on bolts, I mean, you're not getting any more money. So we had a board meeting shortly after that. And so we, you know, we had to face the tough decision. Do we continue our current position uh, and lose our only source of funds? <laughs> Uh, or keep the position and try to, you know, move forward. I mean, it's literally our start. We were just getting started. Sure. And um, I think in the in the end, it wound up being the best thing for us because the decision was, and it was it wasn't a simple one because you know it was easy. It would have been easy to start making compromises. You know, we'll back off a little bit on this. Right. And, yeah, it sounds like some sort of presidential campaign, right? Or yeah, the donors like you know, this isn't. Right. You know, and this it is took what us, I would prefer yeah. happens, right? And it took about ten years before Patagonia came back on board, and that's all now, you know, water under the bridge, right? But it was, um, it was a real great stand-up moment for, <laughs> for us yeah. to finally decide. And that first couple of years was tough. I mean, there were some paychecks for employees that were met only by second mortgages by some people, and by phone calls to people in this industry. I mean, you and I are here meeting during the outdoor retailer right. show. And I mean, climbers joined the access fund from the beginning, but the strongest initial supporters were the outdoor industry. And in those days, hardly any of them sponsors were sponsors of the American Alpine Club. Mm -hmm. The American Alpine Club had no corporate sponsors. Okay. This industry recognized that the access fund was out there doing the work that was important to them. Yeah. There, if you couldn't climb, you weren't going to be selling the gear. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a pretty simple equation. Right. Yeah. But they really believed in us. Right. And Black Diamond was just starting at the same time. They were our strongest supporter from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And one of the best validations that we ever had that we were doing something right was that the outdoor industry were the first ones to support us. And there were people in the outdoor industry that met our paychecks. Payrolls on right. Friday, right? In response to a phone call the day before. Okay. So, and I don't think that was just uh, that they were doing it because it's in you know their best long term interest. They mm -hmm. it was because they agreed and believed in us. And I always thought that was the, one of the best validations. Uh, I want to leave the Access Fund um, and the Access thing. We'll we'll probably close. I want to talk about the Pan Am. Um, wanted to bring that back around. But before we get too much further and run out of time, I wanted to ask you about Cuba. You were maybe a self-avowed sort of weekend climber for a long time in Yosemite and everything else. But it looks to me or it sounds to me and what I looked at that Cuba suddenly became this real passion for you in terms of climbing there. Um, yeah. Can you talk about like what, how that happened and, and what it meant to, to go to a place like that? And yeah. I mean, this was what, what years was this? I mean, it wasn't well, easy to go to Cuba. It hasn't been easy up until, no. what, a couple of weeks ago. 
And also, he understands where I where I came from for that because uh, even though you know I was defending sport climbing, which you're doing when you're defending bolts, I wasn't that much of a sport climber. I mean, I'd already been a trad climber, which and, is to say, a climber because there was no yeah when yeah, you started was yeah there was yeah. no but but even when sport climbing, I always loved to go any I loved all kinds of climbing. I did mountaineering, I did expeditions. You know, I, I started doing ski mountaineering just because I loved to be able to climb and then ski. I loved everything associated with climbing. I don't think we tended to put an adjective in front of what kind of mm-hmm. climber we were then. And I clipped tons of bolts because one of my favorite climbing places eventually became Tuolumne. And you're climbing faces and climbing bolts. I mean, that, I think in the 80s, that was the main climbing I did. I did I, there was a period there where I didn't stop going to the valley. I just loved the meadows so much. But, you know, you were maybe going <laughs> 20 more feet between bolts. But then I moved from California, went, you know, and moved to the Tetons, started working as a climbing guide for Exxon. And my family was from Cuba. My mother was born in Cuba. My father went to school there back and forth. One of my ancestors was president of Cuba. And so on my own, 1998, I just, you know, I hadn't been there in 40 years. So I said, well, I'm just going to go. I just went to Mexico and went over there on my own. And I spent two weeks there, met the woman who eventually became my wife <laughs> and is here's outdoor retailer show with me. But when I was there, my Lonely Planet guide described this place, Mignales, as being, you know, this spectacular site with walls that were similar to those in Yosemite. I said, well, you know, gosh, I got to go see this. So I went there. <clears throat> and there is not at all like Yosemite, but it did have <laughs> these big four, 500, some 800 foot high walls of limestone. So even though I wasn't a sport climber and, and didn't know anything about karst limestone, turns out it's karst limestone, just like in Thailand and other places in, in Asia. Uh, I didn't even know that then, but, you know, I started asking around. I said, well, has anyone been climbed here? Have you ever seen anyone? No, no, no. Everyone said no, and they've ever seen that. And I even cut a path with, with a guide there uh, up to the base of one of the walls and stuff. and uh, and walked along on the wall. It's pretty impressive. And so I, I came back to the United States, started talking about friends about it. And lo and behold, I was talking to George Braxick, who, well, that, he, he was no longer the publisher of Rock and Ice. He'd started Rock and Ice. And he said, oh, yeah, Craig Lubin wants to go there, you know, because he's done climbing in Puerto Rico and Cayman Brock. And eventually, two or three months later, he puts a, a team and we, we're back in Cuba with power drills and stuff. And as 1999, Craig and I did four trips in the first year. I mean, he and I just totally you know, were just taken over by Cuba. That just took off a whole new tangent in my life, you know, mm-hmm. helping put up sport routes. And, uh, you know, we just, Craig and I really fell in love with Cuba. Right. So you mentioned earlier when we were on the access issue and talking about land managers and and wanting to control everything. It's not always easy to uh, get away with stuff like that in, in, a, in a place like Cuba where climbing is just sort of an alien activity. Um, so what was it like to roll into the culture there and, and start spraying bolts up these walls? Well, at first, you know, it, we, we had no opposition because, I mean, you're in a rural area. The Vinales Valley is a, a valley of about 10,000 people living there. And, uh, we, you know, you, you you cross farmers' land to get to the walls, and we befriended the the farmers, 
Craig and I had made a special effort to include Cubans. Uh, so that actually when we first went there, we, we brought some Cubans who were just starting to climb. Um, and so, and we had good contacts. It was nice to have no controversy about bolts. I mean, the controversy which developed over time was with the government, but not dealing with the, the how we climb issue mm -hmm. as in the United States. But in Cuba, since it's a totalitarian country, the government is accustomed to controlling everything, and particularly in the sports world. And here was an activity where they did not start it. They didn't control it. And at the heart of it, there was this feeling that climbers themselves run it. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things in all the years working now in, client, in Cuba is I never talk politics with them. Right. I mean, you don't talk, mention Fidel or totalitarianism and all that. You don't um, talk about the problems with the government. But the climbers there develop the same attitude that climbers do everywhere. They don't want the government telling them what to do with the climbing. It's, it's something inherent in the sport. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it has nothing to do with politics. But, you know, in Cuba, it does. But that's different because in that system, politics is into everything. And so as far as the government's concerned, it's a political act when you're doing something that they don't control. Okay. And climbers have no interest in politics there. Which I've always found interesting that they've developed the same attitude about freedom in terms of their climbing that, that I found climbers have all over the world. Mm -hmm. you know, we're basically don't accept any sort of authoritarian control or regimentation of how we climb right. and what we climb. And we've never talked to that with the Cubans, but they, <laughs> they share that same opinion. Sure. It's not starting you know, like, right. you know, when you're teaching them to climb, you don't talk about that. Right. It just appears. Yes. It just it developed. There. Yeah. It comes, it comes with the package you know, mm -hmm. of uh, climbing. So what's the state of it now? Well, we're in 2015. I think the first time they called me in to talk about climbing the government, because they, they found it easier to, to, to blame it on a foreigner than blame it on the Cubans. Sure. So the first time they started talking about problems with climbing was 2003. And they summoned me uh, to a meeting in uh, the province capital of the province with the meeting of the head of the park service there. And uh, the favorite phrase of Cuban bureaucrats is that you were doing something that wasn't authorized. They say, well, she, this woman's head of the park service who was meeting with me and, and she brought the lawyer for the park service. And the lawyer for the park service kept writing down. But I noticed very quickly that she was only writing down what the director of the park service was telling me. Mm -hmm. She didn't care what I was saying. It was, they were just building a record of what I was being told. Sure. <laughs> so that, so that then they could uh, do whatever they wanted to do with me. But the main line was climbing isn't authorized. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd say, well, does that mean it's prohibited? And he'd say, well, it's not authorized. Does that mean that if I do it, you know, I'm violating a law. Well, we haven't authorized climbing yet. So you really shouldn't be doing it because it's not authorized yet. And I found that this is the attitude around the, the whole country is that until the government authorizes something, 
the people shouldn't be doing it. You know, and so, I mean, that sort of meetings talk went on for years. Until, Did you ever say, well, can someone go ahead and authorize it then? Or can we oh, move no, to no, that? Yeah, that? That all happened. And, you know, oh, that's being worked on, it's being considered. And, uh, uh, no, they never did. They never, quote, authorized it. And then eventually in 2012, they actually out and out banned all access to the mountains around Mignales. It, it mostly affected climbing because they, in effect, closed climbing. But in fact, what they closed was hiking, climbing, birding, which by that time, Vinales was a World Heritage Site. It was a national park. They banned everything. Huh. All access to the mountainous areas, unless you go with a guide. And the guides are only authorized to go on three trails, and none of which, you know, you can't go climbing with the guide. So, but, you know, it's like Kabuki Theater in Cuba. <laughs> uh, Climbing now, the officials sit back and say it's banned. So we've taken care of it, and they they post guards eh, once or twice a week, occasionally at one or two places. They're always gone by two o'clock in the afternoon. So at those places, the rule is you go climbing after two. They're never there on weekends, and there's a schedule of like all the other places you can go the rest right. of the times. So, right, and so. Uh, you can still climb. Everybody still climbs, but they all play this game of the the officials thinking they've banned climbing, climbing stop happening, and climbers saying that we can still climb and everyone's climbing. Sure, but it does. It you know it certainly brought home to me the impact occurring in a lot of places in South America, um, in in terms of uh, threatening climbing. Right. And I, I was going to ask you that. So, I mean, is that these dealing with this, is that the impetus for, for the, the pan, pan am access, pan am. Yeah. For access all pan am in Spanish. Right. Um, for yes. Although it, it was more, even more personal than that. Okay. Because, um, in 2005, when I was, you know, cause I basically would, would spend about five to six months a year in Cuba by then. I was going there every spring and fall summer. I was working back in. Jackson for Exum. In the winter, I'd have two or three months of skiing, working a little bit on avalanche courses. And when I was in Cuba, I was in climbing, or I also was doing uh, guiding trips there. Not sport climbing, because you know, sport climbers don't. <laughs> right. You never make, make money on it. any sort of climbing guiding. But just regular eco, as we called it, guiding. Because I'd scouted every square inch of Cuba looking for climbing areas. Sure. So I had pretty full life there, you know, built around Cuba four or five months a year. Um, my then girlfriend and I, she was actually my fiance. We built a house in Vinales. And so I was going back in the fall and I got to the airport from Cancun and put me under arrest. And they said, no, you're inadmissible. Kept me under guard overnight, walked me to the airport, back to the plane in the morning and shipped me back to Mexico. And I've been inadmissible to Cuba for the last, um, well, next month's going to be 10 years. Oh, man. So that was a much more personal sort of effect on me, impact. They never has said why. There's a lot of reasons it could have been, you know, like building a house in Mignon's foreigners aren't supposed to. It's in my now wife's name. But uh, the main reason, of course, was that I think it was that 
they they consider me the person principally responsible for creating the climbing community. That I not only was created the website, the guidebook, and, um, the, we had a, a well-established donation program to sustain the Cuban climbers. I brought Cuban climbers out of Cuba to teach them how to guide and how to go back then and work. And it had become a pretty self-sufficient climbing community. And just as an aside to me, what was really important to me, and I, I think I really learned this from Craig Lubin. Craig was really influential to me and to the Cubans, even though he only, he went like that first year three or four times. The next year he returned only once. And then he couldn't go back again because Craig had so many other interests like other climbers. You know, he started helping people in China and other places. But he, he taught me how important it was to, to really create a, a local group of climbers. And it, to me, then it became important that not only were there Cuban climbers, but that Cubans became the principal developers of their own country. Because in the first two or three years, you know, 90% of the routes were being put up by foreigners. You know, there was mostly the, the, our small group of Americans, but David Brasco, a well-known Spanish climber, came and put over, put up a bunch of routes. A really great team of British climbers from Sheffield came and put up 25, some, some of them still the best routes there. Still the hard, one of them is still the hardest climb in Cuba, 14A. But after that, little by little, we, by doing everything from providing Cuban climbers with power drills, bolts, equipment. After about 2003, the Cubans took the lead in developing their own climbing. Mm -hmm. And now the overwhelming majority of all the routes there have been put up by Cuban. So that was really important. And so we, we did help, you know, create a self-sufficient, well, I don't want to say self-sufficient because it's don't supported by others, but I mean, it's a freestanding independent climbing community. Mm -hmm. And so then I got banned. I, I realized that it was time to try to move on and create something for Latin America. Mm-hmm. You know, something because there isn't anything in Latin America like the access committee or right. the access fund. Right. And in general, the climbing federations are pretty weak. They don't do much other than sponsor people for the international competitions. Sure. Uh, so 2009, that's what I did. It's just help launch a new organization. Mm -hmm. But my personal motiv motivation was Cuba. What I'd learned there, what I'd seen the problems that both the Cubans, because, I mean, the problems that I've gone through, Chris, are nothing compared to the Cubans. The, a lot of them have been arrested. <laughs> right. And they don't charge them with climbing. They charge them with something else. But essentially, it's being climbed for climbing. Uh-huh. And sometimes it used to be for hanging out with foreigners. They get There's this crime in Cuba called dangerousness. That's effect what it is. Pelogrosia. <laughs> dangerousness. Yeah, you're in danger of violating so uh they call them socialist norms. Sure. It's a status crime. You don't yeah. they don't have to prove you did something. It's just you're hanging out with this person and that person. Uh this you don't have a job. Place, right. Yeah, you don't have a job because most of the climbers didn't have jobs. Uh they were climbing. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh so they they've suffered a lot worse. So that that was the, my my personal motivation to see if we couldn't start an organization to deal with access problems throughout Latin America. Mm -hmm. And is there, I mean, 
it's got to be feel a little bit impenetrable with an organization in Cuba, or has there been any sort of progress? No, because it, yeah. I mean, Talk I mean, there you. are some places where right. the the usual tactics that we used in the United States have you know are helpless, you know, right? <clears throat> like Cuba, because you got a totalitarian government. I mean, you know, <laughs> climbing comes down the pretty far down the list of things you want to deal with, other right, than right. free speech, right, the yes. right to, to do the job you want, move where you want. And the same thing is true, like another country that we've had a really hard time trying to help is Mexico. I mean, you know, what do you do when people are, you know, massacres are happening where you can't go into some places around Potrero Chico because, you know, the, the drug lords control the area. Sure. There's no one you can go talk to, no land manager you can go negotiate with. Uh, that's not true in the majority of Latin America. Right. But there are places that uh, we haven't been able to help at all. And ironically, Cuba is one of them, even though, you know, we, uh, I work with them all the time in terms of trying to help them, give them advice, keep them going. Uh, the leader of the Cuban, Cuban climbing community, Yarobis Garcia, I mean, we've brought him out of the country three times uh, to, to conferences and meetings and stuff. And I don't think that that translates directly into uh, action that they can do, but it does keep the morale. I mean, you have to. You have to sustain people in the activity they do. Sure. Well, but the I mean, fact that right. they are being supported, it goes back to that. Uh, when I said, you know, that it was Rafi Bedain who taught me, you know, the, got me involved. The main lesson I learned from Rafi, from Rafi, is that just showing up. When we started the Access Fund, one of the things I do whenever I get a well, it was actually when we're doing the Access Committee, I, someone would come for me to do help on some problem they were having. I would try to go there. And I found that if I just showed up, mm -hmm. usually that helped people so much to realize that you know, here was this organization that cared about what their problem was. Most of the time, they were going to deal with the issue themselves. Right. You know, we might lend them a name. We didn't have any money. <laughs> we didn't have any real horsepower to do much for them. That changed in time when, when there was the access fund. But I learned there was a huge impact of showing up. Right. That's what I learned from Rafi. So and when you when you started Access Pan Am, you, I mean, you, you're like, okay, I have these experiences in Cuba. I, I have this experience with the Access Fund. I'm going to start this organization. And, and I sort of like envision this moment where you're like, okay, you sign the papers. We have this organization. And you were just like, oh my God, what now? Like, it seems like there's so many places that you have so far to go to reach whoever it is you're even to even find out whoever it is you're even supposed to talk to and what the issues are or are you are you hearing from the people i mean how are you interact i mean how are you finding out that this place got closed or they're having a problem with this guy here i mean it's 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 like south america it's central america it's, it's huge yeah i mean I mean, in some places, right. and the problems are so different. Oh, no, right. it is. I mean, you're you're right. But once you're in the game, people know you're there. Okay. I mean, my my part is not that big. I mean, I'm I'm up here in the United States, mm -hmm. and I go down there, yes. But I mainly up here raise money. And once again, it's the industry that's responsible for starting us. So our main source of money is the climbing industry. Okay. And we're lucky we have an executive director, Kika Bradford. She's in Rio. 
speak Spanish, English, and Portuguese, which is what you need to cover all of Latin America. And Kika does 80% of the work. Okay. And, you know, I'm the money guy. Right. <laughs> and then I, you know, I do what I can. But, you know, so we have one person on the ground and we're now we're trying to hire part-time employees in other countries. But that's what, you, you know, you start little by little. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> when we started the access fund, who, I mean, I, where they are at today was something unimaginable. <laughs> right. To those of us in 1990, 91, two, two and three. I mean, it's, you know, I look at them, what they've accomplished, you know, and how big they are and everything they do and how pro- both professional, but at the same time, the passion they get, they still bring that same passion to what they do that we think we had. Right. Well, I mean, I was trying to think because I started climbing in that same moment, really, in that same era. And I was just trying to think, well, when did I, when was I aware of the, access fund. And and I think we're all just assume it's always been there. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I can't remember what a time when it wasn't, even though I, I climbed before it was in existence. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's ubiquitous within climbing in America and not that everybody's joining shame on you that aren't, but you know, it's, everybody knows what the access fund is. If you're a climber for five minutes, you know, outside, you know, especially outdoors. So yeah, it's a quite an achievement. I mean, certainly. And one of my favorite lines that I've said many a time, and I hope I get to say it about <clears throat> Access Pan Am someday, is that uh, the best part of it has been to watch what what we started almost 25 years ago get taken over by successive generations of new people coming in. And then it becomes their passion. And they've taken the organization in many different directions. It's so great to see that that they do that. You know, it, it hasn't stayed the same doing the same things it did when we started. New people come along and they've taken it, you know, farther in their own way, in their own direction. And they've cared about it as much as those of us that started. And I, I that to me has just been great. Well, awesome. Uh, thanks a lot, Armando. I think we should end it there. and. Uh... Uh, you giving praise to those who came after you is a is a great way to leave the podcast. Uh, I totally appreciate you coming and sitting down, and um, it's been fascinating, man, to talk to you. That's fun. That's why I always tell people: if you're doing access work or anything like that, and you're not having fun, then you're probably not doing a good job at it. All right, thanks, Armando. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and I want to thank Armando for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure to talk to the guy. And you probably didn't even know Armando had your back in so many ways out there. So please consider joining the Access Fund if you are not a member, because you are receiving but not giving. You're like the guy that disappears when it's time to do the dishes or cook or set up a tent. Yeah, you got to get on board. Check it out. It's cheap. Not that much money. Accessfund.org is where you can do that. See you next time. Don't forget to check your knot.
to a hooky love. Hooky, 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 hooky love. Everybody loves a hooky love. But the lao lao is the cow cow at the luau. We throw our nets out into the sea. And only a mama comes swimming to me. Oh, we're going to a hooky love. A hooky, 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 hooky love. What a beautiful day for fishing The old Hawaiian way The hooky loudets swishing Down at old Laiyat Bay Oh, we're going to a hooky loud A hooky, 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 hooky loud There's romance beneath Hawaiian skies With a lovely hula hula maiden roll their eyes While the silvery moon is shining above The Connies and Mahini sing a song about love Paradise now at the Hooky Love Hooky, 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 hooky Hooky, 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 hooky